welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Phil Donaldson continues our series in Hebrews, sharing from Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 18. And now, here's Phil. We are continuing in the book of Hebrews series, considering together the great salvation that God wants all to enjoy in Him. Before us this morning, our study is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Please have your Bibles open there as we will read it verses at a time as we journey through these majestic and glorious truths together. Let's begin then with the overall theme entitled, Purity Matters. The observation and study of light is an amazing experience of our world that God made. When I was intending to ask Peggy if she would marry me, I wanted to buy her a diamond ring. I visited Ben Bowman in South Porcupine at his jewelry store, and he introduced me to the fascination of light that a diamond creates. Out came a lamp source that showed me how each one he brought out would sparkle and display brilliantly colored lights from different angles. Then were the first three C lessons of cut, color, and carrots that were all factors in the levels of light possible. For the fourth C, he took out a large microscope to teach me about clarity, which I quickly learned was a synonym for inclusion impurities. Ring by ring, he let me see for myself the impurities that detracted from the ability of the diamond to reflect the light being given. Then came my extremely naive question in the knowledge of diamonds formation and manufacture. Is there a way that you can remove those impurities? His facial expression was the only answer I was going to get. It was clear. You're kidding, right? That quietened me down enough for him to introduce his main point in the fifth C, the cost. We'll come back to that later. What we have before us this morning is the universal problem deeply embedded in the heart of every human. We were created in the image of God to reflect the light received from him and reflect it back to him and to those around us. What can be done about so much impurity in our lives is what is before us in our passage this morning. Let's pray. Dear God, our Father, we are before you in humility and obedience as we recognize that you are the one God and Lord. We are also grateful for your word that illuminates our mind with your truth. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit who will, who will align us to your message from your word this morning. Our prayer is that you will continue to remove, remove impurity from our lives so that your true light will shine in and through us to all around. We pray these things in the name of our great Savior and Lord. Amen. We're going to reach back into chapter 9 for a few verses to start. Verse 23, it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Verse 26, then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. In the last chapter, we were reminded of the need for the removal of impurities from our lives. The Hebrew nation had thousands of years of privilege at the hand of God to know fully about his purposes for their lives and their nation. Their need for total cleansing was well known through the law, covenant, and priests and prophets. The record was clear that overall they failed in remaining committed to him. 
They failed him in their own nation. And they failed him in their responsibility to shine the light of the one true God to the nations around. Jesus came as their promised Messiah to draw all to himself through providing to them a complete and final cleansing of the impurities of sin and to offer to them a new life free from the death-bringing effect of sin for now and for eternity. The audience at the time of writing were in a situation of tremendous challenge and difficulty. They were newly born Christians facing persecution from the Romans. Their lives were full of uncertainty. Their newfound faith in Jesus was giving place to fear. The security within the Christian family seemed shallow compared to the alternative of returning to their former Jewish communities. And they were seriously contemplating returning to the temple practices where there was perhaps less risk uh, by belonging to their old groups. Sure, they were glad to be done with the animal sacrifices that were not very effective in their lives. Sure, they were glad to get away from all of the rules and their enforcement by the high priest. Sure, in Christ, they knew about their high priest in heaven, but this is all new, risky, unseen, and uncertain. So the author seeks to assure them that what they had is from God to them, and he has so much more to offer for what is the most important thing in life. Committing to the Lord and his will with all our hearts, committing to his salvation, complete with a thorough cleansing once for all, committing to his loving care over us as our high priest who himself provided this purification and light shining power free of impurity are all reasons to not turn back but persevere in faith. They're called to remember that what they had was fulfilled and done away with by Jesus. The first thing that they knew in their hearts was that the old covenant practices as specified in the law were only a shadow of good things to come later. Let's read chapter 10, verses 1 and 2 of our passage in the NIV. The law is only a shadow of the things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeating, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. It is important to not get lost in antiquity as we seek to understand how the application of our text is so critically relevant to us today. It is necessary, though, to first understand how these verses would be heard and applied by the audience of the day. Let's pick up two snapshots from different time periods to demonstrate what the author is saying here. The law was never the reality. It was always the shadow of what lay ahead. The first snapshot is of Moses and his leadership team up the mountain where the law and instructions for God's people were given. The occasion is mentioned in Hebrews 8, verse 5. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Reaching back into that story, Exodus chapter 24. Then God said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. Verse 18, then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed there 40 days and 40 nights. Exodus 25, verse 8, then have them make a sanctuary for me, said the Lord. 
and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. The author of Hebrews reached back to Moses and the bringing of the law and the instructions to build the tabernacle. He called Moses up into the mountain to seek God in a special manifestation of his glory, along with his leadership team. Moses stayed for 40 days to make detailed sketches, copies, and notes of what God was showing him about what to build. We don't know what glimpse or foretaste of heaven Moses saw. What we do know is that God shone his brilliant light of glory on him, on the other leaders, and on all the people around the mountain as he was instructing them. They were clearly told how he wanted them to live and and dwell with him. They were continually reminded that he knows they are sinners and that he will forgive their sin and be blessed by him if they listen and obey. What Moses did see was a glimpse of the glory of the presence of the Lord and something of what the reality of heaven in God's presence looked like. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. The second snapshot is from Jesus' early teaching about what he wanted his people then and now to know about what God really wants for us. This snapshot is one that I have stitched together from various images in the gospel message of John that centers on what is true in God's eyes. First, God is looking to find in us what is true rather than what is false. John 1:47. when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. He is also looking to shine his light on everyone. He also wanted all to know that he alone is the true light. John 1 verse 9, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And in John 7 verse 28, then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, and so on. John chapter 6 and verse 32, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. John chapter 6, verse 55. And in the light of truth that he shines on us, he is looking for us to be true to him. He wants us to be faithful to him by being a true reflection of what he shines in us. Another of the dimension to the word true is in its verb form. We are to true ourselves to his image. We are to bring ourselves into the exact shape, alignment, or position that he designed and wants us to be in. Now, all those various dimensions of the truth of God in our lives leads us to the richness that was clear to the first Christian martyr, Stephen. This is the second image to be stitched into our understanding of what the old covenant meant to the people of the time. We know the story well. Stephen faced the Jews in Jerusalem. They were the same crowd that the Christians in the Hebrews audience were facing and who were enticing them to return to the temple and its priests. Let's listen in to a few things he said in the defense to them. So Stephen said, He, Moses, was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. 
but our fathers refused to obey him. Verse 44, our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Verse 52, was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen continues this understanding that the law and the tabernacle were were shadows from the light that God was providing for his people. Moses sketched what God showed him within his glory circle in the mountain. The true tabernacle sketched from heaven was the shadow of what Moses had glimpses of in heaven. And Jesus is that fulfillment who was promised, who came from heaven and has returned there now as our high priest. This dimension of what is true is about what is accurate or exact. It was a true depiction. Notice again Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. The point of what we are saying is this. We do not have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by men. Verse 5. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern I showed you on the mountain. So let's just summarize this complex session. The law was the document that defined God's expectations of what he expects of those made in his image. The law also included the ceremonial law, which were his expectations for his people in their individual and collective relationship with him of worship, service, and witness. The audience would well remember its beginnings at Mount Sinai. They would remember that Moses, his leadership team, and the people gathered below had a glimpse of the realities that God showed them about himself. He is the true light. He is the only majestic and powerful one. And he is full of glory that he wants his people to see and appropriate to themselves. He is the reality. His expectations, which he gave them, were also the shadows of the reality. The tabernacle design came from the true tabernacle in heaven and displayed in some way for Moses to record through his sketches, notes, and instructions. The sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year were not the reality. Yes, instructed by God, but they could not deal with the impurities in all the people. They could not make them perfect. They were not able to cleanse. The very fact that in their design they were repeated spoke to the ongoing reliance on something else in the reality to cleanse them once for all and to remove their guilt. If you are here this morning and bearing a load of guilt for past sin, your sinful nature that continues to drag you down, the endless requests for forgiveness, Christ is the reality, not only for the Old Testament people, not only for those at the beginning of the Christian era, but also for you and for me today. The law is only a shadow of good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, they would have stopped being offered. The law, in all its respects, was only a shadow of what was given then and of what was promised to come. The former practices they well knew were the only were only the reminder 
annually of sins. And that brings us to the form of practices from verses 3 to, to 6 about being annual reminders of sin. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. The author presents several lines of what the former practices were, that they were shadows, not the realities, and that therefore they could never by themselves solve the sin, the sin nature, and purity problems. First, the old covenant practices were designed as annual reminders of sin from the beginning. God was after their return submission, obedience, and love of his people. They were always to understand that he was the, to be the object of their worship and that he was the forgiver, forgiver of sin. They were offering, offering showing their choice of him rather than idols and self-worship. They were designed only as annual reminders of sin, so plainly stated by Samuel to King Saul as a part of God rejecting him as king in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Second, and for this we return to verse 2. By the obvious design of God that they were to build a copy of what was the reality, it was impossible by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. The very design of the practices were repetitive day by day, festival by festival, year by year. Had they been the reality of heaven? Verse 2 shows that the design of the repetitive offerings could not in themselves clear the conscience of the people. Hebrews 9, verse 9, this is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Third, it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Yes, the Lord asked it of his people, but it was not the sacrifice that was the reality. It was God's work and his alone that dealt with the impurity problem. These old practices were designed to remind people of who their God and Savior was, and that their current blessings of God and their eternal salvation were found in him alone. It was impossible for the offerings to remove sin, because by themselves they were impotent. Without the reality behind them, God himself was offering. We need to ponder the why of this statement. For this we come to the cost of purity. Remember the five C's of buying a diamond ring with no impurity? Ben Bowman laughed when I asked him what it would cost for no impurity in this ring. No one could afford it, he said. This C is for the cost or for the price. Death is the outcome and the natural penalty of sin. Sin is defined as the falling short of the line of perfection of God's character, reflected as written in the Ten Commandments and elsewhere. Sin is also defined beyond that as falling short of God's glory of light that he created us for. But when we allow the impurity that stops that light and glory to shine in us, we gradually die. Continuing in that sin spirals down in this life and brings those into eternity without the purity that allows entry into God's presence. The sacrifices and offerings of the Old Covenant had a purpose, 
but it was not possible as they were inadequate to deal with the impurity that is the problem. There were surely sacrifices in their time that showed the price or value that would be paid as a price high enough to cleanse for sacrifices. It was only God himself who could pay the price of that kind of value that could achieve that kind of work. The blood of bulls and goats could not make people perfect and cleanse the guilt of their consciences. The people knew that. But the Jews of Jesus' time had, like most of their forefathers, only gone through these sacrifices thinking they could pay for the remission of their sins. As we are in his presence this morning, on the one side of the ledger there is our sins. Before God we know so well that we need cleansing. Only the most deluded can say that they have not sinned and fallen short, even of their own sense of morality, let alone God's high standards. But our impurity and need of cleansing goes to its ongoing effect in our lives and the reality of our conscience. Only the sacrifice of God's Son could be of sufficient value to clear the conscience, remove the guilt, and bring cleansing and purity to the lives of people who turn to him in obedience, love, and commitment. The choice capability was given by the Lord in the design of our brains, our souls, our spirit, our hearts. And the measuring capability of how well we are doing with those choices is also ingrained as we allow his word by his spirit to transform our inner man to receive and reflect his glory and light. Now the author leaves the old covenant and what it was never understood to do. He now turns to what was done in the offering of Jesus himself and builds additional reasons for these people to never look back from whence they came. He knows that these Jewish people, based on all their spiritual knowledge, was handed to them by God in the Old Testament scrolls. So that's his first point. Jesus' sacrifice was written uh, in the scroll. From verse 7, Then I said, Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. To a Jewish audience, this reminder would turn on their lights. Where in the Old Testament was there a reference to the sacrifice of Jesus? The quotation is from Psalm 40, and so they would get their students to unroll the scroll and see those words there written in the first person of the king of that day. King David there said, in the scroll it was written about me, so the circle goes on. So where was that included in the scroll from from the time position of King David as he spoke those words in his psalm. The student would then unroll the scroll back to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 18. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. So Hebrews is saying that when this is written in the scroll, the Messianic Psalm pointed forward to the Messiah, and the new Christians needed to recognize that the Messiah is the King of Israel, who came as the true sacrifice uh, of reality by the Messiah King. To further emphasize this point, he repeats the reference and makes it very clear that the sacrifice of Jesus, the Messiah's King, was the will of God. Verse 8 and verse 9. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. This is the starting premise of scripture from the beginning. God is. 
God made everything. He is sovereign, and all things happen under his will and sovereign control. To deal with the impurity caused by the choices of men and women who have turned away from a relationship with him, the Lord is looking for recognition of who he is. It was by his will we are taught that he is a loving and forgiving God, that he set up the written laws from the basic commandments through to remembering his cleansing available with Old Testament practices, which we're only looking forward to some future time when the reality would be revealed. What the audience needed to base the framework of how they would now be cleansed has changed under the will of God, who set aside the old covenant and was beginning that which was promised in himself. He promised it in the old covenant and fulfilled it in Jesus, all in accordance with his sovereign will. We can accept this as from him, or we can reject and disobey. It is interesting that this is not a quotation of John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God. It is interesting that Jesus is reaching back to the promises of his coming to earth as the Messiah, the divine Son of God, to establish the new covenant. Jesus is not a new thing. He was the promised one from antiquity. It goes back even from the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heels. More than that, Jesus' sacrifice thoroughly cleansed. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Here is the key verse that takes care of the problem of our impurity, our sin. Remember the consequence of sin was death. And God, in his will, brought to earth the only sacrifice that could remove our impurity. This is the other side of the ledger. We were made to be there on the right side. We were made to be in God's presence. He wants to tabernacle among us, indeed, in his people. To be there on the right side, impurity has to be totally cleansed. And how God did this, we know well. Jesus' sacrifice was completed by this priest who is now in heaven, verse 11 and 12. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The Jewish Christians who are being tempted to go back into the comfort and security of their past religion would never have been so challenged by one word, can never. The temple practices of priests and animal sacrifices going on in the city of Jerusalem can never. This priest, the divine son of God, the king and priest, the promised Messiah, by God's will, offered himself for all time one sacrifice for sins. Sit down at the right hand of God. In Hebrew study, this meant the work of Jesus on earth is done. It is completed. It is finished. This priest is now our high priest who welcomes us into his presence and represents his own at the right hand of the Father, for he has returned to his glory and majesty. Like the Jews in this book, it is one thing to accept Jesus as our Savior. It is another to really live in fellowship with our high priest in heaven. He is there representing us. He is not simply sitting and observing. He is there to appropriate his washing, his cleansing, his purposes in his, in his work of making us holy. He is there so we do not return to our past. He breaks that chain, renews our minds, and he is taking us from the immature to the mature, from the unholy to the holy. 
and from being his enemies to being his children. He is taking us forward, never back. Verse 13 and 14, Jesus' sacrifice is the means of our holiness, even the middle in the middle of threats by God's enemies. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. They were indeed facing difficult times. They were being pressured to return to their safe and secure past. But they were being encouraged to never fear and turn back, but to trust and live in faith as they move forward. The former, those people, are enemies of God. Those who trust Jesus Christ for the great salvation of God are made perfect once forever by the sacrifice of Jesus himself. And our lives of faith in him is one of being made in the light of his image and reflecting that brilliant light to all around. Let's close in prayer. Dear God, our Father, please help us to walk in faith and in your glorious light. We are so thankful of the one and only sacrifice Jesus made for us. Help us never to lose faith in you as our true and real person of our love and devotion. Help us not to be diverted or drawn backwards in our walk with you. Help us, we pray, to continue to be cleansed of all impurity so that your light would shine in our hearts and reflect you to all around. We're thankful in Jesus' name, the name above all names. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.